0: Welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported, L.A. Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by Medea Ocher, LARB's Managing Editor.
1: Hi, Dea. Hi, Eric.
0: Today, we've got a conversation with Bassem Youssef, an Egyptian doctor come comedian come international celebrity who is now living his best life, as they say in Los Angeles. Known as the John Stewart of Egypt, Youssef started his own YouTube channel and later television show covering the ouster of Egyptian leader Hosni Mubarak in the wake of the Tahrir Square protests to a wrangling between Islamist, secular, and military factions that has defined the post-Arab Spring moment. I loved this book, both because it reminded me how little grip I actually have on the nuances and even the major details of political conflicts, not only in Tahrir Square, which a friend of mine, Nora El-Tahawi, helped me to kind of navigate in the moment and actually everything after. But this was great just for giving me a lay of the land, again, that book. What about for you?
1: Yeah, same here. I- it also seems rare to be reading about such serious political issues in something as big as the revolution that happened in 2011 in Egypt with a sense of humor that never happens really. I mean, unless, unless you're watching a satirical show of some kind, right? So it was good to have that kind of approach Mm -hmm. in text form where you can just engage with it as you would engage with a book. That was really fun. And I thought it was really interesting talking to Bassem about how he essentially invented a genre in Egypt. where Yeah,
0: that didn't exist before.
1: Right. Where political satire was just not something that ever appeared in any medium, especially one that was not public. So as much as I wanted him to talk to me about transitioning from being a heart surgeon to being a comedian, uh, which I was most curious about it was really interesting finding out how he developed this completely new form.
0: Yeah, I love that. I also kept thinking about how eerily similar, both while I was reading the book and when we were in the midst of the interview, how eerily similar the kinds of tactics, the both propaganda tactics and the misinformation tactics that were being used by the various versions of the Egyptian government and the military and the Islamist leaders, it's like eerily mirrors our own situation right now. And he had a great response to kind of that as this kind of the global turn towards a very conservative vision of the right.
1: Yeah, just another reason to feel the deep despair I already
0: feel. Thanks, Eric. Exactly. But there was lots of humor and jokes
1: yeah okay that's a good sign
0: all right let's get to that conversation We're excited to have Bassem Youssef with us today. An Egyptian cardiologist, Youssef rose to national and international prominence after he began satirically covering the 2011 Tahrir Square protest that led to the ouster of Egyptian dictator Hosni Mubarak. What started as a DIY YouTube show, styled after The Daily Show, soon became one of the most popular TV shows in Egypt, earning him the moniker the John Stewart of Egypt. While his comedic take on the Arab Spring and its aftermath earned him viewership, it also invoked the ire of governmental factions under President Mohamed Morsi. After a warrant went out for his arrest in March 2013, Youssef fled to the United States, where he currently lives with his family in Los Angeles, California. So Bassem, the book charts your career from the 2011 protests in Tahrir Square to the present. Can you just give us a sense of what you were trying to do with the book, what kind of story you were trying to tell?
2: So uh, first of all, it is a personal story, my story, and uh, I think it's an interesting story to tell about a heart surgeon who left medicine to become a political satirist and try to uh, recreate the Jon Stewart experience of The Daily Show in the Middle East. It's the most unlikely show in the most unlikely place. But also, and that's what the name says, which is like revolution for dummies, it's not just like an autobiography of what happened to me. But I'm trying to explain to people what the hell is happening in the Middle East, because a lot of people have certain misconceptions and stereotypes. So I'm trying to explain to them when they they hear the word political Islam or military dictatorship or Mubarak or the Muslim Brotherhood or whatever they hear about the words that just comes flying out of the Middle East. I tried as much as possible to dumb it down for someone who have absolutely no experience about what is the Middle East. So I kind of like I'm taking people's hands along the way as I'm telling my story. And I'm, I sometimes I sidetrack and give them a sense of what does that mean when they hear these expressions? How do you tell the story? So I give an example of my book. I said, like, imagine yourself watching The Daily Show and then you're hearing stuff like Fox News, Democrats, Republicans, uh, filibuster. Uh, and you don't know what is the right wing, uh, the uh, televangelists, you will need a dictionary to explain to you what is happening. You need a manual. So I'm kind of like I'm giving that manual as they read. And as they read what's happening, what's behind the terminology and the jargon, I give the story of how all of these powers have interacted in the last few years mm. and why basically is the Middle East is in such a bad shape.
1: One of the things that I was thinking about... so part of I mean what you were just saying, which is that you're trying to really hold the hand of somebody who has no idea what's happening, right? Was there something that you learned during that process? I mean, for you and for Americans, presumably words like fox, right wing, eventually they become second nature. You don't need them defined because you're living within that system. But is there something that you discovered while sort of taking this very for dummies approach to the political situation in Egypt?
2: Absolutely, because on me, like, as an individual, I have grown and have evolved through this experience. I had certain built-in ideas and conception about, like, how things are working in the Middle East. and Now I look at people who represent religion, people who represent the army, people who represent military authority, way differently than I did in the beginning. And the way that I view things now has absolutely differed from the way that I viewed it before all of this has started.
0: Well, can you talk a little bit about how that's different?
2: Because we are born in authoritarian, patriarchal societies, we grow up with a certain kind of reverence and respect to people who would represent military authority or religious authorities. And uh, the revolution and the aftermath of the revolution was enough to shake every single thing like it's kind of we were shaken to our core and now we look at them in a totally different light and i've been like vocal against these two authorities since then i never kind of like looked at them in a much of a respect but right now whatever respect that i had is gone and uh i look at them as just like people who use this ideology in order to push their agenda.
0: And when you say we, Bassem, are you talking about Egyptians? or?
2: I can't, of course, speak to all of Egyptians, but I think a big portion of younger generations are now having second and third thoughts about their ideas About Mm. these people. One thing that
0: comes up throughout the book, and I'm very interested in this transition that you experience from cardiologist to comedian, so both kind of how you found your rhythm and voice as a satirist, effectively, and then Jon Stewart is obviously a huge part of that story, and he comes up many times in the book. Can you talk both about kind of how you found that voice and also kind of what, your relationship is with Jon Stewart, kind of what you found so inspiring about what he was doing with The Daily Show.
2: Because I watched The Daily Show for many years, and I always have fantasized about having the same kind of show in Egypt, I was always looking at him as like how he could deconstruct certain kinds of news, how he Mm. finds his way to make fun of something or educate people or make people informed. So that, of course, had a big influence. But of course, we had to redo everything in our voice, in our voice that actually matters to Egyptians and actually makes sense to people watching us in the Arab world. So I got the essence, but I had to make it my own. John has always been a big brother, and uh, I owe him a lot. Uh, Looking at the show and seeing how important it is. I mean, as a part of like, there's certain part of my career that like I I would do something, I wanted this to be successful. To kind of like to be validated by him <laughs> and uh, he's been always a great support
0: can you talk a little bit about what you see as the political use of humor or satire what do you think it helps to capture that maybe other forms of political discourse don't
2: well as coming from like a place which puts authority whether military or religion in uh, a higher place than others almost like holy I think political satire shows helps in uh, humanizing these people, putting them as humans, kind of like seeing the uh, emperor naked, if you Mm. like to sort of speak. And this is something that is not a common practice in the Middle East. You guys here have kind of like a very established uh, history of satire and speaking truth to power. So we don't have that in the Middle East. So that was totally new for us.
1: Has there been a rise of that kind of approach to politics after your show?
2: Unfortunately, there has been a huge setback. My show was the end of political satire era in Egypt. Now, there are a lot of talented people. Many of them worked on my show. We even have recreated the Saturday Night Live in Arabic. We have other shows that like, do comedy, but the only thing that is allowed is social comedy. So political comedy is totally off-topic. It's out of the question.
1: And social comedy, would you give us sort of a a sense of what that looks like? I mean, I imagine that being a sort of anodyne...
2: Imagine a Saturday Night Live without the political sketches, without Trump, without even something like the Me Too movement. Mm. Nothing. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is just like very simple, domesticated, castrated comedy that talks about, like, mundane everyday life, about relationships, uh, you know, divorce, uh, going out, dating, stuff like that.
1: And are you still following Egyptian media and, well, I assume you're following the politics still, from your outside vantage point?
2: Yeah, you can't escape your Facebook feed. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. It does
1: follow you everywhere. It's in your pocket.
2: So, yeah, I still
0: follow them. Uh, I am interested, you're saying that kind of your show represented the kind of apex of political humor as a response to what's going on on the ground in Egypt, and that that's fallen away. As I kind of look at the situation that's kind of consuming the world right now, I do wonder, do you see any limits to the political use of humor? In other words, what happens when everything in life kind of becomes just a big joke. I mean, I'm thinking, obviously, to show all of my cards here, I'm thinking <laughs> about our crazy domestic situation where it's got to be really difficult, actually, for comedians to not just pick the easy, low-hanging fruit. Like, that's what was so great about Jon Stewart is that he could transform and show us things. And now I'm worried, you know, is there a limit to political humor?
2: I don't think there's limit to political humor. I think just the sky is not even the limit. I mean, are you asking me about, like, what are the limits of satire, like things that are a no-go zone?
0: Not in terms of what you can or can't say, but I mean more like a limit in terms of the work that it can actually do. What happens when we're just laughing, but that laughing doesn't really lead to any change?
2: That's not the, the satirist's or comedian's job to make change. This is one of the myths of political satire. I mean, I understand that people look to the John Olivers, the Samantha Bees, the, you know, the Trevor Noah, the John Stewart, and they think of, you know, oh my God, you're saving us. We're not saving anybody. If you laugh and you don't make any change, it's not really our fault. The job of comedians or political satirists is to bring more people to the table to discuss matters that might otherwise be extremely dull or not interesting. They make them interesting and they use humor to engage as many people as possible in order to be aware of what's happening and to form an opinion. Whether or Mm. not change happens, it's really up to the people. You know, when they say like prayer doesn't change things, prayer change people and people change things. So it's just like up to you. I mean, if you laugh every single weekend or every day watching a political satire show and then comes the midterms and you don't go down to vote, that's not the comedy's fault.
0: Right, 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 right. You're listening to LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Bassam Youssef about his book, Revolution for Dummies, Laughing Through the Arab Spring. We will return to that conversation in just a moment. But first, we have this week's book recommendation.
1: So we are going to be talking with Azarine Vanderfleet der Fleet Illumi today about a book recommendation. Azarine is the author of, her most recent book is Call Me Zebra. She's also the author of Fra Keeler. Azarine, what is the book that you're going to be recommending today?
3: So I brought in a book that I first read as a graduate student when I was at Brown. It's by Clarice Lispector, and it's called The Passion According to GH. Can you tell us about the book? Yeah. So it happens, it's a fairly short book. It's about 130 pages or so. And it's this extended internal monologue of a woman who enters into a room in her house, and she's in Brazil, she can see the favelas out of her window, and she's standing there observing the room and seeing how charged it is with its own kind of life and forces, and she's thinking about history, she's thinking about her body, and there's a cockroach, and she's also contemplating what it might mean to kill the cockroach and then perhaps eat the cockroach. So it's a sort of exploration of of the grotesque as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, I thought I could read just a very short passage so you can get a sense of the language. I shall need courage to do what I'm going to do, to talk and to run the risk of the enormous surprise that I'm going to feel at the poverty of what I say. As soon as I say it, I'll have to add, that isn't it, that isn't it at all. But I'll also need not to be afraid of being foolish. I've always gone for the less rather than the more, for fear of seeming foolish along the way. And also there's the wounding of one's dignity. I'm putting off the moment when I have to talk. Is it because I'm afraid? It's a really beautiful book. It's, it's very poetic, but there is, like all of Lespector's work, a huge narrative impulse just dragging you from page to page.
1: What about that passage drew you in? Because in, to me, it sounds like it is about the ways in which words fall short, inevitably. Mm-hmm. Right? But yeah. And so it's interesting to give a book recommendation and, and read a passage where it is about how inevitably, no matter what you say, no matter how you say it, you will have to say, this is not good enough. <laughs>
3: I think that's fundamental to any writer's relationship to language. It's it's often a frustrated relationship. Mm-hmm. It's often a kind of uh, battle of trying to make it, hammer it into something that feels, if not good enough, a close enough reflection of something experiential or concrete or material, right? So I think that tension of of speaking and seeing the infinite possibility in this expansive nature of language and at the same time how limiting it can be or how not enough it can be sometimes is is sort of at the core of an obsession with writing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And you're on book tour. Yes. And you said that you've you've read this book before. Is
3: this a book that you take with you when you travel? No, I brought it in for to share with you guys. Oh. I teach her work often. This is a book I haven't revisited actually, but I have lots of passages underlined, as you can see, and when I opened the book, I had written speech and silence under that passage, (laughs) which is something that I thought about so much while I was also writing Call Me Zebra and when I was writing "Frock Healer." So it was interesting to realize how much reading this influenced me while I was early on trying to figure out where to locate myself in relation to all these questions.
1: I can see those connections. Okay, can you tell us the title of the book again and the author?
3: It's Clarice Le Spectre, The Passion According to GH.
1: Thank you so much. That was Azarain Vanderfleet Alumi, author of Call Me Zebra.
0: You are listening to the LARB radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Basim Youssef.
1: you approaching american politics these days do you have an <laughs> urge sometimes to just go back into your laundry room and make a different youtube show but now it's it's american politics that you're tearing apart
2: well i have done a show called democracy handbook with which is basically satirizing american politics from a middle eastern point of view so i still do that but of course like if i'm pitching uh, ideas and shows and scripted and non-scripted trying to find my own space here mm-hmm but I cannot recreate my own show in Egypt here because now you already, it's already an established thing. So I have to find a different niche, a different space for me to do it. And of course, living in Los Angeles, as you know, everybody is with an idea and everybody is pitching uh, some kind of a show waiting for the big break. So basically, I'm being a, a true Angelino right now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and how have you found Los Angeles? How, and how has your family oh, found uh, it?
2: Well, first of all, you cannot compete with that weather. Oh yeah! It is February, and I'm in short sleeves. So come on, it's amazing. Uh, And of course, and and one thing I I like about Los Angeles is about like how diverse everything is. Mm. How people are diverse. How options are diverse. How there are a lot of options, a lot of like uh, different things that could be offered from all kind of walks of life, from restaurants to people to uh, entertainment to places to live. I'm happy that my daughter is in a public school and her class is just like a, a true melting pot of nationalities ethnicities and uh, colors and which is amazing this is something i would never could have given her back in egypt or even other places in the in the united states so i'm very happy about this
0: i do imagine though that there there must always and there always is when when you leave a place that that was home there must be some feeling and i can't even imagine how difficult that was when you had to leave i mean is there a way in which you still miss egypt
2: well well people always ask me this but like i always ask like maybe the egypt that i missed is not there anymore it mm. has changed and uh you leave with you miss certain things there but maybe these things are not the same a lot of things have happened since then and uh Maybe uh, I'm kind of like trying to look forward to my new life here and uh, trying to adapt and trying to. And I'm, 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 I like it. It's it's a great city to be in here.
1: Though I hear that you're, you're, uh, you're looking forward. I would also like to hear a little bit about the Cairo that you missed that you think is no longer there. What is it that you think has disappeared?
2: Hope. Mm. (laughs) It's kind of, uh, we had like a huge hope uh, after the Arab Spring. And uh, we, we 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 had the the willingness and the power and the hope that we can change things, and it we were almost changing. And I did the ch- I was part of that change by introducing a genre that was never uh, present in the media before. So you kind of like you're doing change and you're seeing the results and you're happy about it. And then when all of that is taken away from you, and what is left is. Uh, the disgruntled feeling of nothing's going to change, the tyranny has increased uh, exponentially that people themselves are kind of there's like a whole weight of 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 anger and despair and this this kind of like uh, has uh, eventually have a toll on you yeah so this is kind of like the uh, what I have left behind. Do
0: you see, you know, because I'm thinking as you're saying is like, oh, that sounds familiar. I remember a time when it felt like, oh my god, so much hope, somewhere around 2008 I think. (laughs) Um, You know, and there's so much hope and then now it doesn't quite feel that way and there's more that loss of of feeling. I mean, there's you make many comparisons between what's what was happening in Egypt when you were there and kind of the rise of Donald Trump here and there's uh, like Abu Ismail you, and figures like that you kind of show how they they use media and their position particular position albeit from very different contexts to kind of uh, perform a similar thing. Do you think that we're heading towards something more globally that these kind of experiences that we're isolating in Egypt and in the United States are kind of happening in a much broader way?
2: Well, there is a, a very disturbing rise of the right wing everywhere, yeah. uh, the whole idea of like you know being uh, nationalist, populist, uh, racist, and it is resonating everywhere, uh, and uh, yes, there is a concern but Uh, I still believe that, like, the Western democracies are not that fragile, because if they could be undermined by one person coming to power, who should have, uh, who people have a chance to change him after one term, that would be disturbed, that tells a lot of, like, not about the rise of these people, but, like, how fragile the democracy is.
0: Right, right. I
2: think think there, because there's a long tradition of uh, secularism and democracy and inclusiveness, I think this could be a hiccup and I think this could be maybe the the pendulum swinging into the opposite direction and it should come back. So I, I I don't think it is totally hopeless. Can you And I think oh. and, and I think and I think stories from my place stories from my book should serve as a warning more than anything.
0: And okay so what Where do you kind of locate hope? I mean, a lot of in the book, a lot of that hope seems to reside with a younger generation that, as you were also saying earlier, kind of sees things differently. They have a different sense of what is possible and and where political energies might be channeled. So, but can you give us a sense of like where you see kind of hope for resisting that kind of global hard right tide?
2: Well, I mean, as you said, like it's younger generations, they are more aware of the world right
0: now. Mm -hmm. They're more
2: aware information and internet now makes it much more difficult for people to be controlled like sheep the way their parents were in 1950s and 60s. So maybe now people now have access and have more of a reference, more of a, 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 a sense of what is happening in the world. And they will not. It's not like uh, one source of information, one source of truth, as it was before. So maybe that's where hope resides.
0: Though that same internet uh, just, is also uh,
2: just like, uh, just like uh, like the same authoritarian, the, the the authoritarian regimes are trying to control people the same way. The the regime started like they they still live in the fifties and the sixties, mm. while the 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 new generation have been living in the new world right now.
1: Something that I thought was really interesting while reading your book was, and and I've thought about this before, because there are some comedians who do this, and they do this successfully, though I think it's really hard, is to be funny in different languages at the same time. Because, of course, different languages don't work the same way. Arabic does not have the same, I assume, I, I don't speak the language, but doesn't have the same intonations as English does, doesn't have the same connotations. How have you found or how have you figured out how to be funny in a different language because you are you are funny but that oh, just seems you. like <laughs> such a it just seems <laughs> yeah, like yeah we a, should tell a, readers a that the
0: book is very funny <laughs> the
1: book is very funny we are talking about very serious subjects yeah. of course but the book is really funny and it's light you, you treat it as a very serious subject as lightheartedly as you can <laughs> um, which is very, and so yeah you do succeed in being funny how did you how did you do that
2: well, it is a work in progress and I, I still learn. I still, I mean, I do have my own like live shows. Sometimes I take it on tour. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I try to be funny in a language that's not mine to an audience that's not mine, in a country that's not mine. So it, yeah. is, it is a work in progress and it is, it is a challenge, but it is, it is something that I learn about every single day. It is something that, you know, you watch and you learn, you imitate and you, you bring it in your own voice. So um, and it it is it's been like in the works forever. I mean, like you know, uh, it 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 might start. It started by me uh, watching uh, uh, Friends and the Muppet Show, and then you uh, elevate yourself to Seinfeld, and then you watch uh, (laughs) Frasier, and then you watch Frasier, and then you understand more.
1: (laughs) What's not funny? uh,
2: Sorry. Oh, Oh,
1: just that Frasier was not funny. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) I haven't seen Frasier in a long time.
0: She was saying, oh, she was oh, like, Frasier. except for Frasier, which is not funny.
1: No,
2: Frasier is very funny. I agree. <laughs> I'm outvoted, I mean, okay. I, 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 no, Frasier is, is like, I mean, when Frasier was on the air, friends couldn't even get an Emmy. <laughs> I mean, That's I mean, good to remember, Bassem, that gives me a, hope. <laughs> it is. It is very sophisticated, it's a very sophisticated comedy. I mean, I like it. And it took me a while. I didn't. I couldn't understand it in the beginning. But now, but now I kind of like uh, I got around and I understood it.
1: Is, can you tell us an example of a joke or a line or a, a piece of satire that you thought was definitely going to work? You thought this was very funny. You were like, this is going to kill the audience. And it just you went up there and it was live and it just didn't work. Do you have an example of that?
2: I, I I can't say I don't have anything on the top of my mind, but like I think also yes, uh, there was a lot of these, and mm-hmm. again it's a trial and error, and it could and the line could be funny, but the delivery was not, and the line the line and delivery would be funny, but the timing was not, because timing and delivery and rhythm is totally different from a language to the other, right? Yeah. And this is something that like I again I'm learning every single day.
1: Is there a way in which I assume your your children are also? learning English, is there a way in which the, their uh, acqu- acquiring of the language has helped you figuring out what, what works and what doesn't?
2: Well, I mean, my, my, my daughter, her first language is English. And I'm oh. having trouble trying to teach her Arabic. Okay. Mm. Uh, because you know, she is in an American school, and uh, that's my struggle with her. So I'm, I'm having the struggle of teaching her Arabic, not English. <laughs> right. Does she right. think that you're funny? Uh, well all, all kids in six years old think their parents oh that's right <laughs> she's not a teenager yet, so you can <laughs> wait for that I, 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 until they grow up and they know the truth
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> well, as we kind of wrap up here um Bushem, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now
2: well i uh me and Larry Wilmore have written a pilot uh, about, uh like uh, for a, a t v comedy, and uh we are kind of like uh you know shopping it around right now.
0: Oh wait! What would uh, we, the topic uh, be?
2: Can you talk about it? It's about a Middle Eastern family with secret superpowers.
0: Oh, Ooh. I love Larry Wilmore.
2: Uh, yeah, he's amazing. It's so and, funny. Uh, we're shopping it. Uh, we're shopping it around with ABC Studios, and um, we. Uh, I'm also working on other projects. Other. Also, I have my live shows. Sometimes I go on tour, and um, I. Uh, I do my own stand up. I. I I kind of like uh and I, and I, and, I, and there's a lot of other kind of scripts in development, so kind of like I'm living the Los Angeles like every time you <laughs> ask someone here, what you're doing is like, Oh, I'm working on a script, so this is what I'm doing right now, I'm working on a script <laughs> right. so, or or script, so uh, yeah, this is what I'm working on right now.
0: Do you ever miss being a heart surgeon no. <laughs> <laughs> So you found then your true calling here in Los Angeles, not to be a heart surgeon, but to be uh, an entertainer.
2: Yeah, and to live a life of rejection. (laughs)
0: That's funny. All right. Bassem Youssef, thank you so much for joining us. We've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take (laughs) care. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Lyra Smith. Our researcher is Chloe Chapp. Production assistance is provided by William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levens. Our interns, Samson Amore, Natasha Boyd, and Joaquin Perez. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour.